Well, good morning, brothers and sisters of Community Bible Church. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And for the benefit of those who may be here for the first time, and maybe those of you who were soaking up too much of the summer and we've missed you for the last little bit, that's just fine. Allow me to set the context for you this morning from Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 is all about the sovereignty of God in salvation and His plan to generate glory for Himself. Chapter 1 gives us election, adoption, redemption, and salvation, this acronym, EARS, right? You've been given EARS to hear, E-A-R-S, EARS to hear by God. He's the one who does that. Chapter 2 says the reason why, you were dead. But God, by His power and in this act of grace, made you alive together with Christ. God even delighted himself in designing good works for you to perform, good works that help you to unite in the body of Christ, the church, into what we are here today, one new man in Christ, the church. And why the church? If you're in chapter 3, if you flip there and look at verse 10, you can see the whole reason why. It's right there in verse 10 of chapter 3. So that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's why you're part of the church. And then in verse 21, as he closes in doxology, Paul says, now to him, to the Father. Verse 21, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Does that say the church is important? You bet it does. Do you know this? Do you know that the church is important? Do you know that these are the facts of life? God's glory is right here in our gathering together. This is his design. Your job as a human being is to do what? Give glory to God. That's your purpose. That's why you're here. This only happens, though, by finding your place in the context of a local church. It's impossible for you to give glory as you were designed in living a life outside of the church. Paul expects the redeemed of God who love Christ to love, give, serve, and find life in Christ in the local church. And we get to celebrate that even in the weeks to come, even next week. Looking forward to that. Participation in the church requires that we be commanded. Why do we need to be commanded? Because you have pride and sin. Yes, you. You have pride and you have sin. And we all need help. We desperately need help. So in chapter 4, Paul gives us the help we need in the form of the commands you see. In chapter 4, verse 1, walk worthy of this calling that you've been called into. You know, you weren't called to play for Gonzaga University soccer. You didn't get that privilege. But you were called here to play soccer with us. Chapter 4, verse 3, be diligent then. If you're called in here, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what we're trying to establish here. That unity command, that unity focus is in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, as Paul focuses on unity in the church. And then Paul turns his focus in 17 through 32 of chapter 4, focusing on the purity of the church. For purity, we must end our old Gentile ways. We see this in verses 17 through 19. We must stop the downward spiral of depravity. And we must positively, confidently know how we learned Christ. If we've heard Him, if we've been taught in Christ, we must embrace our Savior's way, the way of truth, the way of righteousness, the way of holiness from verse 24. And so last week, we looked specifically at the way of Christ instructed in verses 20 and 21. And this week we must consider the way of Christ conducted in verses 22 to 24. Because this is the question for all of us who believe in Jesus Christ this morning. Can we be bold, confident, and certain like Paul is in our understanding of Christ's ways? 
Can we be bold, confident, and certain like Paul in our understanding of salvation? Is salvation and the way of Christ consistent from believer to believer? Is there a standard? Is there a pattern with regard to salvation? Shall we know that standard, that pattern with regard to salvation that we may be certain of it? That we may live in it in obedience and even train others like our children to live and follow in these ways as well? We need to be certain. We need to be bold. We need to be confident in understanding salvation, and we can. Emmanuel was an adult patient of Dr. Richard Gans in a psych hospital in New York. And you can only imagine the choices and lifestyle that led to Emmanuel's inpatient stay in a psych ward in New York. As a result of his choices, the goal for his treatment, Dr. Gans says, was to get Emmanuel to form and speak a sentence of four coherent words. The man had lost his mind. And one day, Emmanuel did speak four coherent words. In a group session, as the members looked on, astonished and shocked, Emmanuel went from anxious deep breathing to violent spasms and hyperventilation, writhing in agony until he finally arrived at his four-word sentence, finally cried out in front of the whole group, I am Jesus Christ! Dr. Gans whipped out his New Testament pocket Bible and read from Matthew 24, verses 23 to 24. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect of God. Dr. Gans says abruptly, Emmanuel's writhing, spasming, and hyperventilation ceased. The man looked at him calmly and said, where did you read that from? (laughs) Dr. Gans tossed him the Bible, gave him the chapter and verse, and told him, read it for yourself. Four weeks later, After not speaking a word, Emmanuel knocked on Dr. Gans' door. Dr. Gans asked him, Emmanuel, what brings you here? Emmanuel said clearly and calmly, I want to be a Christian. When do you want to become a Christian? Asked Dr. Gans. And Emmanuel replied, right now. Dr. Gans showed Emmanuel from Scripture God's plan of salvation. And the two bowed their knees together before God as Emmanuel prayed to God, repenting of his sins and expressing his trust in God alone that through Jesus Christ he could be saved and had been from all of his sins. Dr. Gans says, quote, the years that had been stripped away from Emmanuel were restored in an instant. What can we know about salvation? What can we know about this way of Christ? What can we know about righteousness and truth? How is salvation conducted? What happens in an instant? What happens in the instant of salvation? What happens after that instant of salvation? Our goal this morning is to embrace our Savior's way, and we will do that by reading the text and specifically focusing on the way of Christ conducted. What actions mark salvation and even create a pattern by which we must live our lives? You'll see them in verses 22 to 24. But let's read the whole of the text today and set it into context. Verse 17 through 24, reading together Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. Paul says to the Ephesians, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they having become callous, 
have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. What you are seeing in the text is total transformation. This is complete change at the level of nature, at the level of your essence. Emmanuel's change was a nature change. It was a total internal change. You might call this the metamorphosis of man from wretched to righteous, from heathen to holy. The transformation here is far superior even to the metamorphosis of the monarch butterfly. Consider all that we know about the miracle life that is the life cycle of the monarch butterfly. Four days it's in an egg. Fourteen days it walks around as a caterpillar. Ten days it required to build the chrysalis in which it will stay for 14 to 42 days, after which the chrysalis splits open and out comes the butterfly. Consider the contrast in the life of this butterfly from having many small legs to two big wings. That's a big contrast. From crawling to flying, from having a low view to having an incredibly high view, from being ugly some of you might like caterpillars, I'm sorry. <laughs> to being incredibly beautiful. This process of metamorphosis or transformation is incredibly difficult for even our scientific community to entirely wrap their heads around and understand. Especially when you consider that the caterpillars born on Mount Spokane over this summer will winter in places like Pismo Beach, California, and they do it consistently. How did they learn to fly when they only have one life cycle, they are born in one location and they die somewhere else, how did they learn to fly directly to Pismo Beach to hibernate through the winter? Who taught them that? How did they know the way? Do you know how they know the way? How do they know the way? Colossians chapter 1 verse 16, Jesus created all things. And he teaches them the way. Not only did Jesus create monarch butterfly metamorphosis, teaching each new caterpillar where to fly when they get their wings, even greater still, Jesus is the author of salvation for the sinful human soul who teaches us truth that we might embrace all of his ways. All of his ways for unity among the saints, all of His ways for purity in our lives and in our conduct, all of His ways to build the church, to love the church, because He delights Himself in the church. We need to know all of His ways, and He teaches us. Little by little, day by day, He teaches us. And John Stott asked the question, but what exactly is this truth that is in Jesus? If heathen darkness leads to reckless uncleanness, what is the truth which sets Christians free and leads them to righteousness. Confidently in the text today, Paul is saying to us, I know you. I know what you have been taught. You've been taught salvation. You've been taught that salvation is both 
an instantaneous transformation, the metamorphosis of man from God's enemy to God's friend. You've been taught instantaneous transformation and you have been taught progressive sanctification, the persistent pattern of removing sin and embracing righteousness. Paul taught the glory of salvation and the tension of salvation. It is instantaneous salvation, and awkwardly still, it is continual salvation. Do you feel and sense the tension in the text? Our transformation and salvation is an already salvation, and it is a not yet salvation. Do you know that about yourself? He calls us saints, the hegeos, the holy ones, and yet he commands that we be hegeosmos, the sanctified ones. Do you know this about your salvation, that it is both instantaneous and continual? Do you know this? As I'm saying this to you, if this is news, don't be frustrated. Don't be anxious and don't be confused. When the butterfly emerges from the chrysalis, it simply begins to fly, just like it was designed to do. Notice that if it performs according to its new nature and flaps the wings instead of trying to crawl with them, it will arrive in Pismo Beach for winter. God will see to it. So too, for God's elect and redeemed, we will build up the body of Christ by embracing our Savior's instruction, walking the path of purity, and conducting ourselves in Christ-likeness. On the path to purity, on the path to embracing our Savior's way, Paul retells the three-step cycle of Christian conduct, which confirms our salvation and compels our sanctification. That's where we're going this morning. It is in the text that Paul reminds us of the three-segment spiral of righteousness that gives and grows new life in Christ. I'll say that again for you. Paul reminds us in the text of our three-segment spiral of righteousness that gives and grows new life in Christ. This is a cycle of Christian conduct. This is a spiral of upward righteousness. What three steps in the upward spiral of righteousness give and grow new life in Christ? You see them in the text. They're outlined for us. Number one, put off the old. Number two, put in the truth. And number three, put on the new. Put off, put in, put on. The old, the truth, and the new. This is our outline for this morning. Unquestionably, this is how everyone is saved. Put off the old, put in the truth, put on the new. Additionally, it must be shown that this is a pattern. This is a pattern. If it worked at your salvation, it continues to work. It is a pattern that we all must embrace for the whole course of the rest of our lives in this flesh. Let's then examine these three steps in the upward spiral of righteousness, which both are instantaneous and continual. We find that our salvation is already and not yet, and we can be just fine with that. Let's begin then with step number one in the upward spiral of righteousness. Step number one, put off the old. How do we conduct the way of Christ? How do we conduct ourselves in Christ-likeness? We begin by putting off the old. Put off the old, number one in your notes. So how did we learn Christ? What were you taught at salvation? You were taught this. Most definitively, you were taught this, the end of your old self. You were taught that. That old way, no more. There's so much about that way that has to go away. And over the course of the rest of your life, you continue to look back at that and say, 
That's part of my old self. I need to make that go away. Read the text with me and see step number one in this upward spiral of righteousness. Put off the old. Paul says, here is what you were taught, verse 22, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Paul uses the word apotithemi, which means to put away, to lay aside, or put off. The Holman Bible says took off. The Geneva Bible says cast off. And the imagery here is great. You can't miss the imagery. This is the same word that's used in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, as Stephen, it's a faithful brother, is about to be stoned to death because of his testimony of Jesus Christ by the Pharisees. Who was leading the execution of Stephen by stoning? None other than our dear Apostle Paul, who was at this time called Saul. And the text says, and the witnesses, verse 58 of chapter 7 of Acts says, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They laid aside their robes. They cast off their robes. Where these men laid aside their robes to conduct the evil, that is the stoning of Stephen, and effectively launching the church. Paul is reminding us that salvation, at salvation, you laid aside your old self like a garment. You laid aside your old self like a garment. Harold Honer says, believers were taught that they have put off or have laid aside the old person at conversion. You have already. You've laid aside your old self at conversion. You treat your old self the same way you treat a wet jacket in winter. You cast it off. The reason for this is very evident to you. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. We'll look at verse 16. Paul gives the reason in the text as well. He says, your old ways were being led astray. Your old ways were perishing ways. Your old ways were further being destroyed in the deceit of your lusts. Lusts here is the word epithumia, which means intense desires that are stimulated and influenced by the flesh. How intense are these desires? And what do these desires lead to? Well, you see it in Galatians 5, verse 16, where Paul says, read it with me. Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The conduct of the old self has no place in the kingdom of God or in His church. It must be cast off like an old garment. You don't wear all black to weddings, do you? Nor do you like to wear bright colors to a funeral. Even at church, we wear ties to prove our salvation. That's a joke. <laughs> That's just a joke. Rather, as a general principle, we adapt our clothing to meet our present reality, do we not? You do this. You, you, you know you do this. Prisoners know this in jail. When they see the judge, one set of clothing. In the cell, another set of clothing. And when they get out, they put on their old ways, their old clothing, right? So too in the military. 
Boy, it's a great thing to get off the ship and throw on your civvies, for those of us who've done that before. Even lawyers, even lawyers, even my friends, the lawyers, they have the sense to put on the right attire for the right occasion. What is your present reality? What is your present reality? Are you, are you God's elect child? Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Are you saved? Has the Holy Spirit regenerated you? Do you have a new essence, a new nature about you? If so, then like a nasty, dirty, disgusting, wet old garment, cast off your old self. Cast off that old man in order that you might match with your clothing the present reality that you have in Christ as a saved believer today. You've been saved and you've been taught in Christ, cast off the old man. Don't look that old way. Look the part of the new. John MacArthur reminds us of the transformation and salvation, saying salvation is not the addition of a new self to an old self. In Christ, the old self no longer exists. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And so we see step number one in the upward spiral of righteousness, the way of Christ conducted, is this. Put off the old. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 53. Put off the old. This is great joy for Christians, putting off the old. And it's a requirement of our salvation. And it happened absolutely at our salvation. The old self must die, it must go away. Is the same true in secular psychology? Is the same true there? Not at all. And so it shouldn't surprise you that in the case of Emmanuel and Richard, that the morning after Emmanuel was saved, that Dr. Richard Gantz was called into his director's office. The director says, Rich, I've just heard the craziest story in 31 years that I've been here. Emmanuel's saved, and he's telling everyone on the ward all about it. He wants to get everyone, patients and staff, to become Christians. Is it true that you are speaking these things on the ward as Emmanuel says? And Dr. Gans, he didn't lie. He said it's true. The director urged him, give up this nonsense. He said to him, Richard, if you agree to leave your Christianity out of work, this incident can be forgotten. Emmanuel will just be transferred to a chronic hospital for a few rounds of shock treatment, and all would be forgotten. What should Dr. Gans do? What should he do? You know, at this point, Dr. Richard Gans was only a Christian for eight months. Eight months. You're going to lose your job, right? Eight months into the faith. He's born a Jew, he was, Dr. Gans was. He lost his dad at age 12, and as a result of losing his dad, he hated God and he ran off into atheism. Atheism brought him to psychology. He was going to use psychology to be his meal ticket and success, uh, and, and make him a successfully financially lucrative life by billing hundreds of dollars per hour for listening to people and then just smiling and nodding your head. He was one of 212 applicants, candidates for his current position at the hospital. Life was going so well since he had gotten the job and he and his wife went on a trip to Europe and by the providence of God, on their trip to Europe, they end up staying at a Christian community in the Netherlands called Labrie. It was here that a man approached Richard 
this well-trained humanist, atheist, psychologist, Jew from New York, and this man read him some familiar words. You're in Isaiah 53? We're just going to read a few of these words that was read to Richard on this day. Verses 5 and 6, for instance, let's read there. These words entirely caught his attention. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. Isaiah 53, 5. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on him. Richard was keen to the man's intention in presenting Jesus as the Messiah. This wasn't escaping him. And believing that the man was reading the words of the New Testament, Richard said in anger, anyone who was there at the cross could have written this stuff. What does what you're reading prove to me at all? But the writer of these words wasn't there at the cross, was he? No, and so the man quickly handed the Bible to Richard and pointed to the name at the top of the page. Who wrote these words? Richard says, the name that I saw at the top of the page was Isaiah. They had been reading from my Bible, my Hebrew Scriptures, and I felt as though someone had taken a sword and cut me to pieces. When the man who read it told me that it was written 700 years before Jesus was born, I felt dead. I knew at that instant that if Jesus wrote history about himself in my Bible, then I had to submit everything to him for the rest of my life. And that's exactly what Dr. Richard Gans did. He cast off of his old self, and he submitted his whole life to Christ, even as he had just gotten into practice at this hospital as a psychologist. Turn back in your Bibles to Ephesians 4. What drove Richard to cast off his old self? What drove Richard to speak Christ in the ward? What drove Richard? One word drove Richard. Truth. Truth drove Richard. Which brings us to point number two in your notes. The second step in the upward spiral of righteousness, point number two in your notes, is put in the truth. Put in the truth. The upward spiral continues when we put in the truth. What a world, what a world we live in, brothers and sisters. Isn't it just crazy how eager people in this world are to live by lies? I heard this week from an old man, unsaved, losing his patience, that A, vaccines for COVID-19 work, and they work really well. A. COVID vaccines work really well. Next sentence, B, the unvaccinated will be forced to be vaccinated because the unvaccinated are killing the vaccinated. These two statements are incompatible and mutually exclusive. One of the two statements is a lie. Shall we live by lies and embrace the ways and thoughts of depraved men? Or like Richard, shall we embrace the ways of Christ and be renewed in the truth even if it costs us our job? Truth is renewal of our minds. Outside of Christ, we live according to, outside of Christ, you and I, we lived our lives in lies and deceit. And you know what? We loved it. We loved every bit of it. 
because it helped us build our own kingdom and exalt ourselves. Lies are the fuel of the Gentile life. Lies that you find on Facebook and Twitter, CNN, NBC, the whole alphabet soup of television stations. But now, as God's elect children, truth is the fuel of our lives. Truth. You came in this morning for a fill-up. Because Christ himself is the truth. Ephesians 4.21, the truth is in Jesus. John 14.6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And knowing our need for truth, consider the promise Jesus made to the disciples on the night of glory in the upper room before his death, telling them in John 14, 16, I will ask the Father on your behalf, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So we see next, Paul gives us step number two in the upward spiral of righteousness, effectively saying to us, put in the truth. When he says, we were taught in Christ, verse 23, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Renewal is truth. Renewal is gaining truth. Breathe in truth like oxygen. Drink in truth like water. Feast on truth like bread. Renewal is in truth. Renewal here is happening in a big truth sandwich. In verse 21 and in verse 24, Christ is truth. Christ taught you the truth. God created you in truth. What's been missing the whole course of your Gentile life? What's been missing? Truth. What must be continually put into the spirit of your mind? Even as you're saved, what must be continually put into the spirit of your mind? Truth. Mind renewal is not what the secular psychologists and psychiatrists and the best minds and philosophers of this world would tell you. It is not, mind renewal is not the emptying of your mind. It is not some yoga practice or some other fake therapy offer. Mind renewal, biblical mind renewal is filling your mind with truth, with content. What content? The truth in Christ, the truth of Christ. In His Word, faithfully brought to you in the power of the Spirit. The truth of Christ in His Word by the Spirit. John Stott says, Christian righteousness depends on the constant renewing of our minds. How does renewal in truth happen? By the Holy Spirit, who is in the text, the word Spirit in the text we're going to talk about that. It's not the Spirit of God. That's the human spirit. There's some debate on that. We can, we can have a discussion. By the Holy Spirit, renewal happens. He's in the text. He's in verse 23. He's in the Greek verb. Ananeomai is the Greek verb, which is translated, you be renewed. How is the Holy Spirit in the verb? Well, the verb is in the passive voice, which indicates renewal of the spirit of your mind, is something that happens to you. 
that you are passive in this work. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, which He continues after already having given you salvation. At the same time, there's a conundrum in this verb as well, because this verb is also a present infinitive. And as a present infinitive, it takes the force of a command needing repetition. Continual effort generated by, oddly enough, you. Did you hear the tension then in this verb to be renewed? It's passive and it's a present infinitive. There's a tension in this verb. Renewal is a one-time work of the Holy Spirit and renewal requires your continual participation. How do you participate in renewal? You participate in desire. Where did your desire change? Changed when your nature changed. Changed at the instant of salvation. Do you hunger for truth and righteousness, which is only found in God's Word? Do you have a new spirit living in you, other than the spirit in which you were born? The spirit inside of you has to change. And it can't just be blanketed over. You have to be given a new spirit, not a dark spirit, but a spirit of light and a spirit that wants to receive truth. Let's talk about this. Turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36 tells us plainly how our spirit is instantaneously changed at the moment of salvation. At Community Bible Church, I want you to know this, we affirm dichotomism dichotomism. Let me explain this to you. It's the teaching that man is a two-part being consisting of body and soul, or you might say flesh and spirit. This is very helpful to you, particularly when you engage in the world in which we live, where modern secular psychology has all kinds of theories about the nature or the essence of man. Paul affirms dichotomism. He taught it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Listen. Listen to dichotomism. Listen. Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Outer man is your flesh. Inner man is your spirit. Jesus taught dichotomism as well. Matthew 10, 28 says this, listen. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. All are born with body and spirit that love this world, that love self, that love to build the kingdom of self for the glory of self, all of us. All have sinned and will be paid the wages of sin, which is death. The body physically will die. The lamp inside the body, your spirit, is dark. You're born with a dark spirit, and you're born in a fleshly body, and they love to work together to build the kingdom of self for you. That's what is the pattern for all of humankind. All then will be given a new body in heaven. Sorry, new body after death. And that new body after death is an eternal physical body. And it will either be operating for you in heaven or in hell. Only God's elect are given a new spirit. The giving of the new spirit happens in this life. That's when the transformation happens in this life. A new nature, a desire even wearing the sinful flesh to please God. Only the elect then, when we die, with a spirit that is filled with light and truth, will we be given a glorified body which will go to heaven and be with God, fit to be with God in heaven forever. The transformation of the spirit is the biggest change you could possibly undergo in this life. If you are changed in your spirit, death has no sting. 
Death is stepping through a curtain to you. You're in Ezekiel 36. Let's look at verses 24 to 27. And listen to the sound of spiritual renewal, the sound of salvation, you might say. And as we do, ask yourself the question, is this what God did to me? Ask yourself the question, is this what God is doing to me right now? Is this something that He's doing to you right now? Listen to the text here. And let me set the context for you. The context is this. God is explaining to Israel His plan to vindicate His holy and great name. Israel, as you well know, has profaned and defiled the name of the Lord among the nations for centuries. But God has a plan of vindication, which, oddly enough, proving love and grace and the truth of His promises and word, oddly enough, includes salvation nationally for Israel. And yes, this context is specifically for Israel and still yet future, but the plan of salvation is unquestionably in the text. And the plan of salvation is the same then as it is now as it will be in the future when this prophecy is fulfilled. Salvation is consistent. This is our salvation in the text as well, brothers and sisters. The Lord says through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36, 24, For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land, verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from all of your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This is the first renewal of the spirit of your mind which happens at salvation. And because salvation is done perfectly by God, it is the case that further renewal will be the mutual working of both your new spirit and the Holy Spirit as God had always designed. Mutual working together. And you might ask, what does continual renewal look like? What does it look like for me to work with God? How, how does it actually work to, to be saved by God and, and then to, to, to know salvation happened because He did this to me and, and to be pulled into this calling, but now it's not finished, there's more work. to It's, it's finished, but it's, it's got more work to be done. How do I go through this process of sanctification with God? What, what does this look like? If that's your question, that's great. I hope to be helpful, we want to answer this. Turn to Psalm 139, 13. Psalm 139, verse 13. The Spirit renews our minds when we read His words in Scripture. That's how renewal happens. Your obligation is to love Scripture, to love truth, the truth of the Word of God, and believe more highly about the Word of God than you believe your own thoughts and what someone else told you about the Word of God. Let God's Word speak and trust His words. Here's His Word speaking to you. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. 
Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 says, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. We have something trustworthy. We have something certain in the Word of God. These passages tell us plainly that we can and we must trust and rely fully on the Word of God. And further and moreover, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but we have received the Spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. You don't understand this accurately unless the Spirit lives inside of you. And then you know what this says. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. Why? Because Paul says this. Because Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. Do you realize that you're going to get to study that in just a few weeks from now in your community groups? We have the mind of Christ. Just let that soak in for a second. Culturally, this past week, we've had a perfect chance to see the spirit of the world battling the spirit of God. You could say that there is an absolute war happening between lies and objective truth. What issue am I speaking about culturally? What's at issue? Here's the issue. Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed Senate Bill 8 into law this past week, which effectively bans abortions at week six of pregnancy when a heartbeat can be detected. You know, it seems that abortion is dead in Texas. But not everyone likes Texas' new abortion ban. Seemingly half the people in America are throwing a tantrum over this Texas law. President Biden himself said this extreme Texas law blatantly violates the constitutional right established under Roe versus Wade and upheld as a precedent for nearly half a century. Well, I don't believe that you can get something into the Constitution through judicial activism, but that aside, let me ask you this. What is truth? What is truth? Is truth objective? Whose mind is renewed in regard to this social debate? Whose mind is old, broken, and desperately sick regarding this social debate? Should the murder of the unborn bother Christians? Does it really matter to the unity and the purity and the building up of the body of Christ to have a conversation about abortion? Can't that just be over there? Can't that just be outside of us? Isn't that just politics, Oliver? Christians don't need to be involved in that. That's for those guys. We're, we're trying to do something in the church. Should we be neutral on the issue? Does God and His Word have an opinion about life and murder that must inform our opinions about abortion? Absolutely he does. There are no neutral thoughts in this world. What you believe directly affects how you behave. And if I can say this as well, what you believe affects how you behave and it influences the people around you. And if you are inconsistent in your hold of truth and your practical display of it, People around you will catch on. They'll see your hypocrisy. And whatever you told them about Christ, they'll leave the Christ that you know because there's no objective truth there. 
God's opinion about life is expressed very, very plainly to you in the psalm that you're in right now. Psalm 139, verse 13 through 16. As David says to Yahweh, for you, verse 13, formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. Perhaps you're a genuine, spirit-filled Christian here this morning. Perhaps you've held a pro-abortion position. Perhaps maybe even on this issue of abortion and the origin of life, you've tried to remain neutral. Brother, sister, the call on your life today from Ephesians 4.23 and Psalm 139 is this, that you be renewed by truth in the spirit of your mind. And know that God loves all human life made in His image and likeness from the moment of its conception. Abortion is just one significant place among many places in our lives where we A, seek to establish neutrality, or B, blatantly reject God's way in favor of our own way. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 4. Let me present a few of these other places to you to have you thinking about these as well. Which other places might demand that we have a look at them and be renewed by truth in the spirit of our mind as well? Because everything that happens in this life is theological. I should make you say that with me. <laughs> everything that happens in this life is theological. Everything goes to the glory of God. There's theology in all of these things. There's theology in your excesses, the things that you're excessive about. You're excessive about your entertainment. There's some of you that want to run right out of here right now to go watch a football game. Heaven forbid. You're excessive in your sports and your fitness. You're excessive in your video games. We need renewal. We need renewal in the way of besetting sins, besetting sins that cling and hold on. You know these besetting sins. Pornography, self-harm, cutting, anorexia, greed, the lust of money, besetting sins. And we need renewal in these. Apathy. Apathy at what? Apathy in our foul language, our indecent clothing, Showing up for church without a tie? <laughs> I just, I just did you. <laughs> Apathy in our laziness as men. I'll say that one again. Apathy in our laziness as men. Apathy with regard to the way that our anger stirs up inside of us. Apathy in regard to our anxiety. Apathy in regard to alcohol. How does this one Sound. Let's talk about this one for a second. If I'm going to pick on anyone else, I'm going to pick on this one. How dangerous is this one? Alcohol. Does the Bible have anything to say 
about alcohol. You just read it earlier, Galatians 5.21, drunkards have no part in the kingdom of heaven. Ephesians 5.18, we'll be here in a couple of weeks. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And yes, I understand full well in saying alcohol in a church that this is a Christian liberty. So there is no legalistic policy at Community Bible Church prohibiting alcohol. That would be controlling of us. That would be silly, it would be sophomoric. And yet, I hope it would be a blessing for you to know that your leadership team here at Community Bible Church, Dar, Mark, Larry, Ryan, and I, have committed to each other that alcohol will not be a problem for us because we choose to refrain altogether. How many of you had your heart hit the floor this week when it was reported that Gonzaga University's legendary men's basketball coach Mark Pugh was arrested for a DUI? The truth is that alcohol is a fire, and you know that. If you play with fire, you know that you will be burned. I only painted a snapshot of the places where renewal in the Scripture is not silent. God speaks truth to all of these issues. The question for you is, will you be renewed in the spirit of your mind? Will you end the old ways and put on the new ways, even Christ's ways? Which brings us to point number three in your notes, the third step in the upward spiral of righteousness. Point number three, put on the new. Put on the new. Clint Arnold says, at point three in your notes here, put on the new. Clint Arnold says, we cannot effectively put on our new clothing unless our thinking is altered or renewed. The fact is, we have this new self if we are Christians. We received the old man at birth, and we were given the new man in our heavenly birth. We must put on who we are. And I love that. Who are you? Put on who you are. John MacArthur says the same. The believer then possesses a new nature, a new self, fit for the presence of God. At any moment, fit for the presence of God. This is our truest self, he says, our truest self. So put this one on. This is Paul's reminder and expectation for us in chapter 4, verse 24, where Paul says, you were taught to, verse 24, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Paul returns to the imagery of clothing here in verse 24, only now in the positive. He says, put on, which is the Greek word, Greek verb, endusastai. It means to clothe or to dress oneself. He's not asking us to put on rags, brothers and sisters. He's asking us to put on salvation, to put on the riches that we received freely as a gift of grace from Christ. Put on those riches. Put on this heavenly robe. Put on this fantastic garment of salvation. The new man, the new man fit for the kingdom of God. Romans chapter 13, verses 12 through 14 says this. Listen, it says, Let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you do that? It's there in the temple. Put it on. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you, make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lusts. He closes his letter to Ephesians with a closing, clothing imagery as well. In chapter 6, verse 11, you can see it for yourself. He tells us in chapter 6, 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Well, you're in 
Romans chapter 6, or I should say, turn in your Bibles to Romans 6 for me. Every needful piece of spiritual clothing has already been supplied for you in salvation. Every piece of spiritual clothing already supplied. And yet, put on requires continual effort on our part because of our sinfulness. Remnants of our old sinfulness try to entice us away and try to, if they could, enslave us again into sin. Can our self, can our new nature be enslaved to sin again? No, we are not slaves of sin. We are not. This is not fitting for God's elect children. We've been given everything we need for life and godliness, and as Paul reminds us, we've been made in salvation, quite literally, according to God, created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. There is a restoration in these words. He pulls in this creation word. There is a restoration here, a return to God's original design and creation, the way it was always intended to be, the way of perfection, which man corrupted. And now in salvation, we are able to produce righteousness and holiness of the truth. Get this, will you please? Get this. Before salvation, listen, before salvation, we were not able not to sin. You should write that down. Before salvation, we were not able not to sin. Having been saved, we are now able not to sin. Before salvation, nothing righteous, nothing holy came out of us ever. There was no glory to God except in the judgments that He put on us. And now there is full expectation in our new self, in our new nature, that righteousness and holiness will continually flow out of us like a stream that the glory of God will continually be produced out of you. You're in Romans 6, where Paul is explaining this point exactly. You are not the same, brother. You have been changed, sister. Live the life of the new man in Christ. Chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I think of holiness, the holiness of God, as His essential nature. Holiness is the height. Holiness is the 100% distinctness of God being set apart from everything. And when I think of righteousness, I think of righteousness as the ways and the paths that are everywhere of holiness. Righteousness are the ways and paths of holiness. Job says in Job 29, 14, he says, I put on righteousness and it clothed me like a garment. David says, The Lord is his shepherd. 
He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake, Psalm 23, verse 3. And we know that by Abraham's faith, God declared Abraham's ways righteous in Genesis 15, verse 6. Matthew 5, 6 says to you, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after this righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And I say to you this morning, Christian, you must have a solid biblical understanding of the word righteousness. You should have a page in the front five blank pages of your Bible where you write righteousness across the top and you list all of the fun and joy-filled verses that speak of righteousness because that's the aim of your life. You're a slave of righteousness. Know the verses that go with that. What is righteousness? In regard to alcohol, what is righteousness in regard to abortion? What is righteousness even with regard to anxiety? Don't you know that the Bible speaks to all aspects of life, even anxiety? Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Christ in this context in Matthew 6 is trying to tell you, don't be anxious for anything. Don't be anxious for food. Don't be anxious for shelter. Don't be anxious for clothing. Don't be anxious for your job. If you don't get the vaccine, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious to move to North Idaho. Don't be, an- don't be anxious to farm and cultivate all of the eggs that you need. Don't be anxious. Don't live in fear. Little children, don't be afraid. Don't you understand? If the birds of the air don't have barns in which to store their food, doesn't that speak to you? that God will provide for you, just do this one thing. If God provides for the birds of the air, He will provide for you. Just do this one thing. Be the people who do this one thing. Verse 33, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things of life will be added to you. Even though he was only eight months a Christian, Dr. Richard Gantz lived as a slave of righteousness. He was fired from his job by the director for, quote, using poor professional judgment by letting his religious beliefs enter into his psychotherapeutic practice. He was given 30 days to leave the hospital because he had chosen to bring Christ into the hospital. So what did he do with his time? What did he do with his time? Richard said, my remaining weeks at the hospital more closely resembled a revival service than psychotherapy. (laughs) One patient in particular came to his attention. There was a man on the ward who was a middle-aged Orthodox Jew. And this man was spending most of his time in in life at this age in a fetal position laying on the floor doing nothing. So Richard approached the man and commanded him to get up in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You going to say that to a Jew? I would. (laughs) As you can imagine, the man stood up and he was furious. Dr. Gans said to him, Dr. Gans says, quote, he says, I explained to him that everything he longed and hoped for, both as an individual and as a Jew, could be found in the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus. The man burst out of the room to get a Bible, proclaiming that he would prove Dr. Gans wrong. That's a lot of movement for a guy that was only laying around in a field position. (laughs) The two then would sit down and begin meeting to discuss the Old Testament and what it had to say about Jesus Christ. Dr. Gans says, I never again saw that man in a fetal position. One day, I took him to lunch, and to my amazement, he said to me over lunch, I want to become a Christian now. 
And he was. He was a Christian over burgers and fries. At the end of his 30 days, Dr. Gans, the Jewish man that I just mentioned, and Emmanuel from the other story, they left the hospital, all three of them, liberated, you could say, from the clutches of human psychology, having been renewed in their minds and having put on the new man who in the likeness of God had been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. What does Dr. Gans' story tell us? It tells us this. Salvation is consistent. There is a pattern to salvation. Christ teaches all of us His ways, and life in Him spirals upward, upward, upward as we are slaves of righteousness. We can be bold like Dr. Gans because our God can save anyone. He just wants us to do the obedience of speaking the truth. What is the pattern then? This upward spiral of righteousness? What is the way of Christ conducted? It is this. Put off the old. Put in the truth. Put on the new. Dump the old dead self. Be renewed in the thinking of your mind in truth. And put on who you are. You are a new creation in Christ. This is the pattern of our salvation, which is both instantaneous and continual, which means it is also the pattern of our sanctification. It is the pattern of our sanctification. Why follow the pattern? Why does the righteousness, does, why does the righteousness and Christ-like conduct, what does it matter in this life? Number one, here's why. It's proof of your salvation. If you see the pattern and you know it worked once and you keep using it, it will be proof to you of your own salvation. Second, it causes growth individually and corporately when you use this pattern, when you engage this upward spiral of righteousness for yourself, for your family, and for the body of Christ, that we all may truly be one new man in Christ, building up the church together in purity. And third, you know, doing this pattern, following the pattern that's been established in salvation brings maximum glory to God. And that's probably the best and most important thing. It brings maximum glory to God. There's, some, there's going to be some days when you're doing the pattern and you don't like it. What I have to say to you is in that moment when you're doing the pattern and you don't like it, don't argue. Don't be mad. Praise God because He gets glory in that even when you don't like it. What's stopping you from spiraling upward in righteousness? Well, number one, I would say this to you. You might be one trapped in this. You still love your old ways. The world has got you. Your flesh loves the world more than Christ. You enjoy the lust of the flesh more than you enjoy the joy that comes in the body of Christ. And there's a warning for you in the text this morning, a warning. Death is at the end of that path. Cast off, the text says, like a wet blanket in winter. Cast off your old sinful ways. What else could be stopping you? Second, I would tell you this, the intake of truth. Where do you get truth? Where do you go to get truth? Who is giving you truth? How much truth are they giving you? What does it sound like? What does it look like? Do you reflect on the truth that you've been given? Or in anger, do you scorn and rue the day when you were taught truth that you didn't want to hear? Warning to you. Your anger in the face of truth screams about your pride. When truth comes in whatever size and shape and at whatever speed the guy is speaking it to you, receive it. Receive it humbly, that you might cast off your old ways, embrace truth, and put on the new man in Christ. And then third, I would tell you this, what's stopping your ways? Maybe it's just your desire for pure joy. Do you just have a desire in your heart for pure joy? Where does that come from? 
know, the joys of this world, I think about the alcohol and I think about the lust of the flesh, those joys are not pure. They're not pure. They come with a cost. Think this thought with me. If there are no neutral thoughts in this life, if the old self is dead and is leading to death, if Christ's teaching is sweet, if all truth is in Christ, then the heights of joy, love, and peace are found in holiness and walking in patterns of righteousness. Does putting on and walking in patterns of righteousness and clothing yourself like Job in righteousness, does that mean to you the arrival of pure joy? I hope that it would. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time together. We pray that you would build this church up in purity, righteousness of the truth. Lord, be honored among us as we fill this pattern in our life. If it most certainly happened, the upward spiral of righteousness needs to continue, and we all need to be faithful and obedient in that, to the praise of your name and for the joy, the pure joy that exists in this room. We pray in Christ's name, amen.